I'm excited to be here today to be digging into the Word. Uh, As most of you know, we've been walking through a series over the past few weeks. I've been uh, enjoyed to lead a series over the past few weeks. This is my last week, so uh, kind of good news, bad news is uh, you get to hear from me for the last time for a little while. For some, that may be good news. Um, Some of it may be bad news. But the good news is Justin is going to be starting a new series next week, and we're really excited to walk through uh, that together and and 21 days of prayer and fasting. But uh, the title of this series that we've been walking through, just for a refresher, is The Good Life. The Good Life. And this theme idea for this series comes from John 10.10, where Jesus says that he comes to give life and to give life abundantly. And for the past two weeks, we've been seeking to determine if we've been naive to believe Jesus's words here or if he actually gives abundant life. And if he does, then how does he do this? Two weeks ago, we saw that the good life is satisfying. We looked at the story of Jesus and the woman at the well in John four. And and last week, we saw that the good life is abiding. From Jesus's words to his disciples in John 15. So up to this point, what we've seen about the good life is that we have abundant life as we run to Jesus and we have abundant life as we rest in Jesus. Today, we're going to see what this abundant life looks like as we live for Jesus. I think this is pretty revolutionary to think about the idea that Jesus, the life that Jesus gives is good because we get to be his representatives to those around us. But I think the problem is many of us don't believe this reality to be true. Oftentimes, I think we see our role in God's mission as burdensome and annoying. We feel like living for Jesus and to be more specific, our personal evangelism is something we have to do simply because we've been told. But if we look at the lives of the first disciples of Jesus, it's clear that this isn't how they felt about our role in God's mission. Consider some of their words in Acts 5, 41 and 42. The apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. But as they are freed, this is what scripture says. They then left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And as as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, in uh, Romans 10, he asks, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then listen to Paul's words again as he wrote to Philemon in Philemon 6. He says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. We could read text after text after text, but what we see from the disciples is that they saw it a great honor and privilege to proclaim the gospel and live for the glory of Christ. They believed they would not experience the fullness of life with Christ without exclaiming about his goodness to others. They found overwhelming satisfaction and joy in beholding Christ to those around them, 
even if it meant imprisonment, torture, and death. These early Christians had a radically different view of gospel living than we have now. But why? What is it that they saw that we haven't? What truth were they clinging to that we simply aren't? Anytime we ask these questions, I believe it's always wise to look to the very words of Jesus himself. Because everything the apostles and the disciples believed and preached and performed was completely rooted in the words of Jesus. And in John 4, Jesus does some teaching on missional living. So we're going to dive in to John 4 today if you want to go ahead and turn there. Two weeks ago, we read the first 29 verses of John 4, looking at Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well. Today, we're going to walk through Jesus's encounter with his disciples once they returned from the city. So just to give a quick refresher, at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus finds himself at a well in Samaria. He sent his disciples into the city to buy food for them to eat. And he would wait on them at the well. While they were gone, though, Jesus met a Samaritan woman. And in this encounter, he revealed to her that he is the Messiah that everyone has waited hundreds and hundreds of years to come. Jesus told her of the kingdom of God that was coming and that now, as a result of his coming, he was breaking down the divisional walls put up by the Jews and everyone could know the father through him. This encounter was a picture perfect look at the evangelism of Jesus. And as a result, this woman believed in Jesus and went to tell everyone about this Messiah. And this is where we'll pick up in this text. Starting in verse 31, we're just going to read through verse 38. So if you would like to stand, we'll uh, read these eight verses together. Starting in verse 31, here's what John says. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Father, thank you for your word. The ability to open it and look at it. See the words of our Savior written on paper for us. I pray that as we dig into these words, you would be honored, we would be edified, and transformed into the image of Christ for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So in this moment, we learn from Jesus what we'll spend all of our time dissecting together this morning, which is the truth that the good life is missional. The definition of mission is an important assignment carried out for political, religious, or commercial purposes. Now, some of you already know this, but for those of you who don't, I'm about to embarrass myself for your sake. Um, 
Before I met Jesus, before I was saved by Jesus, my greatest dream and desire was to become a professional Call of Duty player. Um, that's what I that's what I want to do. And I know you're all thinking it. Um, so I just say it. My mom was extremely proud that I wanted to be a professional Call of Duty player. Um, it was what I loved to do. I loved playing Call of Duty, and I spent an ungodly amount of time playing the game. So. Uh, and money, my dad says. So naturally, when I think about the word mission, uh, in my mind, I just immediately associate this word with call of duty. When you set out to complete a mission in that game, you're given a task or you're given a set of tasks. And in order to accomplish the mission, you must complete those tasks. In the same way, but in much more real and important sense, God gave Jesus a mission to carry out which was to bring and establish God's kingdom on earth. And Jesus fulfilled this mission by living, dying, and rising again, offering salvation and entry into this kingdom and taking on the sins of anyone who would trust in him. But more than this, for those who have trusted him, he's given us as his people a mission to carry out as we live life on earth. And if I can put it under a big umbrella with a general definition, I'd say this mission that we've been tasked to carry out is to advance his kingdom by spreading his gospel. To advance his kingdom by spreading his gospel for his glory, the salvation of the lost and the joy of his church. Now, I guess here would be a good time to give a little bit of clarification that I think is necessary Living a missional life is not the same thing as being a missionary. A lot of people don't make this distinction, but I think it's important. Living to carry out God's mission on earth doesn't make you a missionary. It makes you a Christian. The term missionary is a term that I believe should be reserved for Christians who have been specifically called to go to a place where the gospel is not known. And start living and evangelizing and making disciples. My prayer for us as a body is that we would be known as a people who have a huge heartbeat for those who have never heard the name of Jesus. And that many of us would advance God's kingdom by taking the gospel to those who would have never heard the gospel of Jesus, the name of Jesus, if we didn't go to them. But whether you go overseas to be a missionary or not. All of us as Christians are seeking to accomplish the same mission. This is the mission that Jesus made possible and it's the mission that he wants to carry out in us. But to loop back to our original question, simply knowing what this mission is doesn't answer the question, how is a missional life good? We still have yet to see what made this life so appealing to the apostles. Why why were they so adamant about this mission that we've been called to? This is an important question for us to ask, and we cannot, church, take this lightly because God doesn't simply want our reluctant obedience to his mission in spite of how we may feel. For example, Jonah was reluctantly obedient to God, and God was not okay with this. This is because God wants our joyful submission to him. Think about this reality as a parent. If you tell your child to go clean their room, would you rather them respond with something like, oh, 
fine. Or would you rather than go, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. I'll do whatever it is that you want. Obviously, we prefer the latter, even though it's probably never happened to any parent in the room. (laughs) And though it may be a ridiculous example, the premise is still the same. As a parent, you want your child to be joyfully submissive to you with delight. You don't want a child that begrudgingly obeys you out of obligation simply because they feel that they must. And the same is true of our father. He wants his children to joyfully submit to him with great delight in him. So in light of this reality, I think it's important for me to say my desire this morning, my goal this morning is not to make you feel a compulsive burden to share the gospel or live missionally because you have to. My goal this morning is not to stir guilt or make you feel bad about yourself for your lack of faithfulness in this area. Instead, my goal is to shed light on the reality that this missional life is wonderful. And living it out is one of the greatest honors that we can experience on earth. So how is a missional life good? In Jesus' words here in John 4, we see at least six reasons from him that this missional life is the good life. So let's go ahead and dive in with the first thing. The first thing we learn from Jesus is that missional living is fulfilling. Missional living is fulfilling. Remember, at this point in the timeline, Jesus' disciples had returned to him. And he said he was no longer hungry because he had food that they didn't know about. Now, this is strange because remember, at the beginning of chapter four, Jesus sent the disciples into the city to get food because they had been traveling and they were hungry. Jesus was exhausted and he needed to fill his stomach. That's the last the disciples knew when they left. But when they returned, he was no longer hungry for food. And all of a sudden, the disciples start wondering, how in the world did he eat? How has he been satisfied? They started asking each other questions like, I mean, did you bring him something to eat? Does he have food that we don't know about that he's been hiding and storing away? And it's in the midst of their confusion amongst one another that Jesus breaks the news to his disciples. He says, my food is to do the will of the father. Jesus has just opened the eyes of the Samaritan woman. And because she has seen and savored Jesus. Jesus was completely fulfilled with no more need for food. This is pretty radical to say because on the surface, it seems that spiritual evangelism and physical hunger wouldn't and shouldn't affect each other. But Jesus has such a priority of the father's work that food and hunger can't even compare. This is mind blowing to think about. And if we're being honest, I don't think any of us think about doing the Father's will with that much weight. Actually, if I can be transparent for a moment, I remember when I was in high school, sharing the gospel and making much of Jesus was something that I hardly ever did. But more than that, I actually found a lot of joy in doing things that did the opposite of making much of Jesus. I found joy and fulfillment in making unhealthy jokes or at times making fun of people, laughing at sin and actually embracing the wickedness of those around me. Oftentimes I 
indulged myself with the very things that did the opposite of what I was trying to do, which was to make much of Jesus. And I know this goes without saying, but let me remind you by way of encouragement, indulging ourselves with the things of this world and playing around with sin is not good. It may feel good momentarily, but it has no value in any way whatsoever. A good laugh at a joke is nothing compared to seeing someone be brought from death to life. Think of a time in your life, maybe, when someone you love trusted Jesus to save them. Or if you can't think of that, maybe just think about when Jesus saved you. Thinking of moments like this should swell us up with great emotion because we're actually thinking about salvation happening. We're thinking about someone's or our own ears and eyes being open to see and believe in Jesus. Someone's dead heart being removed and a new heart being put in its place. Someone having life breathed into their lungs for the first time. This is a beautiful thing. And I pray we would not be deceived into thinking that enjoying sin with others is worth comparing to the joy and fulfillment of seeing others repent of their sin and turn to Christ. This missional life is fulfilling. If you've ever shared the gospel or seen someone trust Jesus, you can attest to this. If you haven't, you have no idea what you're missing out on. It may not be comfortable. It may not be easy, but it is the most spiritually fulfilling thing That I've ever done. And I think Jesus would say the same. He was so fulfilled by this. That he didn't even want food by the time he was done. Second. We learn from Jesus that missional living is God's will. How is the missional life good? Well missional living is God's will. Again, Jesus, having just finished talking to this woman from Samaria, says he is completely full. And the reason why is in verse 34, because his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Missional living is good and missional living is fulfilling because missional living is God's will. And that's the whole reason Jesus came to earth. In John 6, 36, he tells us, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus's whole goal while he walked the earth was to accomplish the will of the father. And our goal as we walk the earth, because we've been saved and empowered by Jesus, should be to accomplish the will of the father. But why? Why should this be our goal? Well, the answer to this question is found when we investigate what God's will is. God's will can refer to a ton of different things. But for the purposes that we're looking at his will today, I think it can be summed up in three parts. Each of these parts affect the other. First, God's will is his glory. Above all, God does everything for his glory. Scripture is very clear of this. Everything God has done since the beginning of time was for his glory. Creation is meant to glorify his goodness and power. 
His commands are meant to glorify his holiness and righteousness. The flood was meant to glorify his justice and wrath. His divine choice is meant to glorify his sovereignty and wisdom. His word is meant to reveal to us and glorify all the things about himself. The whole point of everything God does is his own glory. And God is all for himself because God is all good. God deserves all recognition, all adoration and all glory. So for him to get all of this from us is good. Second, God's will is the advancement of his kingdom. God desires to see his kingdom advance so that his kingdom would be more full. Why? Because a big, full, vibrant kingdom brings more glory to the king. So God's will being his glory leads him to will the advance of his kingdom. And third, we see that God's will is the good of his people. This is really good news. God desires good for his people. In fact, Romans 8, 28 tells us that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. God wants good for his people. He isn't trying to keep good from us. And here's the beautiful truth that we must understand when thinking about these two things. Our greatest good is God's greatest glory. Meaning, the more he is glorified, the better it is for you and me. Self-glory is no good. Self-satisfaction is no good. Self-help is no good. What is good is God's glory. And when he is most glorified is when we are most joyful and fulfilled. David Platt has said it like this. Your greatest good is found in living for God's greatest glory. So there we have it. God is in this business for himself. His will is ultimately his glory. And praise be to him for seeing fit to include us in making much of himself. The creator of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God chose to use us lowly sinners to glorify himself by the advance of his kingdom through the spread of his gospel. If we truly love God and if we truly love people, we will find no greater joy than living missionally for the sake of fulfilling God's will. Because the result of living missionally is God's greatest glory and our greatest good as his kingdom advances and expands. Third in this text, we learn that Missional living is urgent. Missional living is urgent. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In this moment here, Jesus begins a little farming analogy. Typically in farming, once you plant something, it obviously takes time for that fruit or vegetable or whatever it is to grow. And you can't pick the plants before they ripen because then the fruit would be no good. And at this point in the conversation, it was about four months until it was harvesting time, until it was time to pick the plants. 
Jesus says missional living is not that way. Rather, missional living is urgent. Missional living is happening right now. If they were to look out into the metaphorical fields of people, they would see that they're ripe for harvest. Jesus and John had planted gospel seeds, and because of the gospel seeds, people's hearts are ripe and ready to be transformed with the good news of the gospel. And though Jesus was talking specifically to these men in this scenario, the same ideology still holds true for us. Seeds are being planted and hearts are being ripened. So when you look out at all the people in your family or in the workplace or your friends at school, don't just see faces. See hearts that the Lord may pierce with the truth of the gospel if you're willing to speak it. People are ready to be received into the kingdom of God. And we should see ourselves as workers who are helping to bring them in. And based on what we've just said about God's will, this is really good news and a privilege of a task to carry out. Consider Jesus' words in Luke 2 as he's sending out the 72 to evangelize and to live missional. <coughs> Luke 10, 2 says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Jesus says here in Luke 10, using the same illustration as in John 4, that there are plenty of people who need to hear the gospel, but there are not enough people willing to take it to them. My prayer for us is that we would be people who put our hands on the plow, never look back and urgently labor For the gospel, for the glory of Christ and the salvation of the lost and the fuel that we have to go boldly to live missionally in these harvests is this. God is the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. It belongs to him. We aren't doing anything that isn't in his hand. We aren't doing anything that he isn't actively playing a part in. Consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. May we be people who are urgently planting and watering seeds to see God do a mighty work for his glory alone. Fourth, in this dialogue, we learn from Jesus that missional living is rewarded. Missional living is rewarded. Continuing with the analogy in farming, Jesus says, when you reap the harvest, what you're left with is lots of fruit that you've gathered. And Jesus says in this moment, the same is true spiritually. When you enter the spiritual harvest of evangelism, you will be gathering fruit for eternity. Do you think this way often? Do you ever think about what you do on earth will affect your life in eternity. Don't hear me saying that what we do saves us. We're saved by God's grace alone, period. But as God's grace works in us and as we work for him on earth, scripture is very clear that we will be rewarded in heaven. 
Even if you're a Christian and you live your whole life not seeking to honor and make much of God, you will receive a lesser reward in heaven than someone who did. Everyone who's in heaven will experience greater joy and deeper satisfaction than anything we could ever imagine on earth. But there will be levels of joy and reward some experience that others don't. John Piper has said it like this, and I think this is a really helpful way to put it. In heaven, everyone's cup will be full. But everyone will have a different sized cup. It's not that we all aren't going to experience endless rivers of joy and God's goodness. But each individual will experience it differently and in different ways. So knowing this, I think it's safe to say that each of us really want to be storing up treasures in heaven. Like knowing this, we want to store up as much treasure as we can in heaven for the sake of our joy in his glory. And yeah, treasures on earth may be nice and they may feel good in the moment. But who cares about having a treasure right now when it's going to die as soon as you do? But even knowing this reality of these two things, so many people spend their whole lives doing everything they can to secure treasures for themselves on earth. People are addicted to work. Addicted to possessions, addicted to having anything on earth that makes their life appear to be better. What about you? Is your life marked by pursuit of earthly treasures that will make your life comfortable? Because here's the reality. These things may be good and enjoyable to you for a moment. But they will not last any longer than your final breath. Don't store up any treasures in this world that are going to keep you from storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus says here that one of the greatest ways to store up treasures in heaven is to live missionally. In this point that Jesus is making, here's the truth that we can't simply skim by. The way that you interact with people on earth will affect your experience with God in heaven. So live towards people the way God would have you to make much of his name in everything you do and to share the gospel of Jesus with them and pray that he would use you to save some. And if you live this way, God will graciously reward you for the work that he is doing in and through you. This mission of life is good because it will be greatly rewarded in heaven. And the fifth and sixth, why is the mission of life good? We're going to tackle these two together. We learn from Jesus that missional living is unifying and joyful. Missional living is unifying and joyful. Before I go any further, let me just ask, do any of you just really enjoy living in dissension and drama? No, nobody. That's what I thought. No one enjoys being at odds with other people. And if you do, there's something probably wrong with you. But in light of that reality, listen to what Jesus says about this mission. Already the one who reaps 
is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I see you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is saying here that each individual has a different role to play in the mission of the gospel. No one individual or role is greater than the other, but all are necessary and good. And more than that, here's what Jesus is saying here. When you labor in the gospel with others, it will result in joy with one another. When we work together to accomplish the mission of the gospel, it results in unifying joy. This should be great news. Realistically, the unity we we desire with others in the church and others in this room should be greater than pursuing unity with anyone else on earth. I want y'all to look around in the room at one another right now. Your goal as an individual should be unity with everyone in this room with no exceptions. We are meant to be unified with others who are in the body of Christ. That's how Jesus said the world would know him by our love for one another. Jesus is made much of when we are unified. And coincidentally, Jesus says that we grow in this unity as we pursue God's mission together. Think for a moment about your favorite football team or really any sports team in general. I don't know if you've ever been to one of their games or anything like that, or even to a high school sporting event when, you know, they're competing and there's a big game on the line. But when you're there, you're yelling and cheering for your team. There's some sort of crazy unity that creates a really strong bond between you and the people around you. I remember when Oxford, uh, that's where I went to school, Oxford, when they won the state championship a couple of years after I graduated. I hadn't been to an Oxford game in years, um, just hadn't been to a game at all. But I went to this game, uh, the state championship game in Auburn. That's where I'm pretty sure it was at. And uh, we, we were losing the whole game. We start coming back. And uh, I get super excited. I get chills in the moment. I'm cheering with everybody. And I don't even care about the football team. I don't even know. I I couldn't have told you a single person's name who was on the football team. But because I was here participating with this fan base, I wanted them to win really, really bad. And this is pretty weird when we experience things like this. Like I'm I'm sure many of us have high-fived and hugged people that are complete strangers to us. But we do it because we're gathered together and we each have the same exact mission and goal to cheer the team on with energy, with hopes that they win the game. And one of the greatest moments to experience in sports, maybe even in life, is when your team catches the game winning touchdown or hits the game winning shot. Everybody jumps up and shouts and screams and celebrates because victory has been achieved. This is a great experience to be a part of. But imagine just for a moment how much greater this unifying, joyful experience would be in a pursuit of the mission of Jesus to spread his gospel and advance his kingdom for the glory of God. If you haven't experienced this, let me just tell you, this experience is out of this world. It brings more joy than any sporting event ever could and more unity than you could ever imagine. 
As we leave this place today and as you go to work and school and gatherings, make no mistake, the gospel is your mission. And the good news is you are not alone. Everyone else here has the same goal as you. And God wants us to work together towards this goal. You and your friends are all praying that God would save someone working together to share the gospel and point them to Jesus. When that person comes to know Jesus, you will rejoice and celebrate greatly together. Not because of who you are, what you've done, but because God has so graciously chosen to use you as a tool to bring someone from death to life. And more than simply unifying us, this pursuit keeps us from making too much of ourselves. We know it's God doing the work. We're just working together as instruments of his grace to others. When we live on mission together, it creates deep unity and inexpressible joy in us. Missional living truly is the good life. Most of the time, missions seem burdensome and boring. But I pray from our time together, we've seen that this mission is not burdensome. And this mission is definitely not boring. This mission is more fulfilling than all the world can give. This mission is God's will for us. And it is urgent because all the people that we know and love will die and endure eternal judgment if we don't go to them with the gospel. And thankfully, God has graciously chosen to use us to carry out this mission. And when we pursue this mission, it reaps a great reward in eternity and gives great joy on earth as we are unified together as the body of Christ. Through this mission, God will be glorified, we will be satisfied, and the world will be saved. No greater mission has ever been given. And as ambassadors of Christ, we've been tasked with carrying this great mission out. Let us never back down, never waver, and boldly proclaim the gospel and make much of Christ to all of those around us and to all people around the world. And let us do all of this with great joy for the glory of Christ alone.